this afternoon, I'm going to have to get used to that one of these days, <laughs> this afternoon, that uh, I really appreciate all the faithful servants we have in this church. Can you imagine what church would be like if it was just Pastor and I having to do everything today? Yeah. It would have been real weird, wouldn't it? <laughs> We'd be in big trouble. That's right. So appreciate uh, all the musicians, all the song leaders, everyone that's working with the kids and teaching the classes and all the people that are organizing those things so that, that can happen. Mrs. Hovey, Pastor is right. You were in the trenches this morning because I know who's in that nursery. And uh, my wife says I need to dial back my language on that, but I, I'm, I feel for you. I appreciate you very much. They are a force of nature. So, <laughs> but, uh, and if, if, if Mrs. Hovey wasn't in the nursery to keep them in there, they'd be in here, just guaranteed, or building a, a nest on the playground one of the two. So appreciate everybody that's working and helping and serving in the church, the, the men in the parking lot. Yes, Mr. Bogner? Oh, yeah, they're having a lot of fun. Right, they're, they're bringing stuff home to tell their spouses about. It's, they're learning all about us <clears throat> in that nursery. So... Just be careful, folks. Prayer request time in Sunday school is open season. So just, just be You never know. Well, we are in Psalms again this afternoon. We are in Psalm 6. That's as far as we've gotten so far together. Psalm 6, you can see, says right there in the title, To the chief musician on Neganoth upon Sheminith, a psalm of David. So we know that David wrote this psalm. We don't know exactly when. He wrote this psalm. Sometimes uh, it says right in the title what was going on. Other times we can kind of deduce from the language uh, what were the circumstances that surrounded the psalm. But Psalm 6 is unassociated with any particular event in David's life. In the inscription there in the title where it says to the chief musician on Neganoth upon Sheminith. Anybody know what that means off the top of your head? I would be very impressed if you did. Neganoth means stringed instruments. Stringed instruments. And Sheminith, there's a little bit of a difference of opinion on this. It could mean eighth. Actually, it does mean eighth, but what does that mean? Sheminith means eighth, so it could mean number eight in your hymn book. You know, Could have been a number of a psalm that they used, a song that they used. It also could be eight as in for the octave of voices, for maybe for the men's voices, the lower voices, uh, or the number of strings that were to accompany it. Uh, we don't know for sure, but Neganoth means strings and Sheminith means eight. So that's extra credit. This is an evening psalm. It's an evening psalm. Psalm 3 was a morning psalm. Psalm 4 was an evening psalm. Psalm 5 was a morning psalm. And Psalm 6 is an evening psalm. So this is an evening psalm. One author points out that this is the first of seven penitential psalms in which the writers are being disciplined by God and experiencing suffering. Uh, there's several others. There's Psalm 32, 38, 51, you're probably pretty familiar with, 102, 130, and 143. They're all psalms that are called penitential psalms. They are being uh, under chastisement or discipline of some type. All of these psalms are helpful to us when we need to confess our sins and draw closer to the Lord. 
It's a good uh, start for us to go to these psalms. So in this psalm in particular, David records the stages in his difficult experience of moving by faith from trials to triumph. So Psalm 6, David is weary and worn. Look what it says in verse verses, well, the title through verse 10 there. It says, To the chief musician on Naganoth upon Sheminith, a psalm of David. O Lord, rebuke me not in thine anger, neither chasten me in thy hot displeasure. Have mercy upon me, O Lord, for I am weak. O Lord, heal me, for my bones are vexed. My soul is also sore vexed. But thou, O Lord, how long? Return, O Lord, deliver my soul. O save me for thy mercy's sake. For in death there is no remembrance of thee. In the grave who shall give thee thanks? I am weary with my groaning. All the night I make my bed to swim. I water my couch with my tears. Mine eye is consumed because of grief. It waxeth old because of all mine enemies. Depart from me, all ye workers of iniquity. For the Lord hath heard the voice of my weeping. The Lord hath heard my supplication. The Lord will receive my prayer. Let all mine enemies be ashamed and sore vexed. Let them return and be ashamed suddenly. This afternoon, we're going to break this psalm into four sections. Four sections. In the first, we see discipline. Discipline. Verses 1 through 3, David writes, O Lord, rebuke me not in thine anger. Neither chasten me in thy hot displeasure. Have mercy upon me, O Lord, for I am weak. O Lord, heal me, for my bones are vexed. My soul is also sore vexed, but thou, O Lord, how long? David talks about the discipline he is receiving here. He's under rebuke. The word rebuke means to correct or rebuke. The word chasten means to admonish or chastise or discipline. It's a little bit more severe than the word rebuke. God is, as a a loving heavenly father, disciplining his child. God is a loving heavenly father. First, he rebukes and then he chastens just as a typical parent would warn their child before discipline. A little girl said to her teacher, Miss Hayes, I don't want to scare you, but my dad said if my grades don't improve, someone's going to get a spanking. (laughs) God is a loving Heavenly Father. He warns, he rebukes before he disciplines. And David was rebuked and chastened here. Proverbs 3, 11 and 12 says, My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord. Neither be weary of his correction. For whom the Lord loveth, he correcteth, even as a father, the son in whom he delighteth. As a loving heavenly father, he corrects and disciplines his children. In Revelation 3, verse 19, it says, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Jesus has some pretty uh, uh, sharp rebukes in that portion of Revelation. He says, listen, I I do this because I love you. He's a loving father. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 6 says, And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children, My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. 
David often, if you read through the Psalms and David's life, David often considered the possibility of God's chastisement when troubles and trials came into his life. He often examined himself and whether or not this was a discipline from the Lord. And here in Psalm 6, he is crying out not because he disagrees with God's correction, or that he's opposing God's correction, but rather he wants to be spared God's wrath. Rebuke me not in thine anger, he says, neither chasten me in thy hot displeasure. David was crying out for God to have mercy on him. He recognized the goodness of God in chastising him, but he was fearful of God's wrath and anger. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 31 says, It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And David was fearful of God's wrath. God, rebuke me not in thine anger, neither chasten me in thy hot displeasure. David was surrounded by enemies. He was surrounded by evildoers. He was weak. He was in pain. He was perplexed in his soul. And he wondered if God was displeased with him, angry with him. He says, have mercy upon me, verse 2, for I am weak, O Lord, heal me, for my bones are vexed. Now, up north, I have to define this word. I had actually never heard it used in a sentence till I came down here. Y'all are vexed all the time, you know that? At least my sister-in-law is. So, the word vexed, if you don't use it on a regular basis, means disturbed or dismayed or terrified. If you ever want to know the English meaning of a Bible word, it's good to run back to the 1828 American Dictionary. It's just pretty, pretty close. The word vexed in that dictionary means provoked, irritated, troubled, agitated, disquieted, or afflicted. David's saying, I am, I am agitated, I am afflicted, I am troubled, I am provoked. My soul, my bones are vexed. According to Hebrews 12, one author writes, when God disciplines us, we can despise it, we can resist it, we can collapse under it and quit, or accept it and submit to it. And what God is seeking is submission. David recognizes the discipline of the Lord because of his sin. He doesn't say exactly what it was that he did here, but he recognizes that he deserves it. He agrees with it. He submits to it. Could the trials and difficulties that you are faced with be God's correction? I don't think that God is up there just waiting for us to mess up so that he can cause us trouble. I don't think that at all. But it is a truth that God will not let his child continue in sin without correction. Are you walking with him in a way that gives you confidence that when trouble comes, it's not the chastisement of the Lord? I love the verse in Proverbs 28, verse 1, which says, The wicked flee when no man pursueth, but the righteous are bold as a lion. I think the most practical way I can use to illustrate that is, is when you go flying past the cop on the highway and you're just kind of watching the rearview mirror. If you were going the speed limit, you probably wouldn't worry too much. The wicked flee when no man pursueth. Why? Because they're guilty. They have a guilty conscience. 
They always assume somebody's onto them. But the righteous are bold as a lion. Nothing will stick. So are you walking with God in a way that gives you boldness and confidence that when trouble does come, it's not because of discipline. David was being disciplined. He didn't disagree with the discipline, but he did cry out for mercy. And then notice David talks about death in verses 4 through 5. He says, Return, O Lord, deliver my soul. O save me for thy mercy's sake. For in death there is no remembrance of thee. In the grave, who shall give thee thanks? Death. David cries out for God to come and help him. David's basically saying, God, what good am I to you dead? I have so much more I could serve you, I could do for you, I can praise you. Who, who's going to give you thanks after they're dead? This argument is used elsewhere in Scripture. Lord, preserve me so that I can continue to serve you. Lord, what good am I to you dead? Psalm 30 verses 9 through 10 says, What profit is there in my blood when I go down to the pit? Shall the dust praise thee? Shall it declare thy truth? Hear, O Lord, and have mercy upon me. Lord, be thou my helper. I can't, I can't be a witness for you if I'm rotting in the grave. Help me. Psalm 88 verses 10 through 12 have a similar a uh, similar thought. It says, Wilt thou show wonders to the dead? Shall the dead arise and praise thee? Selah. Shall thy loving kindness be declared in the grave, or thy faithfulness in destruction? Shall thy wonders be known in the dark, and thy righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? This is the argument that David is making to the Lord. Deliver me so that I can continue to give you thanks and praise you. King Hezekiah prayed a similar prayer. In Isaiah 38, you'll find it. It says in verses 18 through 19, King Hezekiah prays and says, For the grave cannot praise thee, death cannot celebrate thee, they that go down into the pit cannot hope for thy truth, the living, the living, he shall praise thee, as I do this day. The father to the children shall make known thy truth. The Old Testament believer, if you read the Old Testament, you'll find they don't have the clear concepts of heaven and life after death that we do today. They didn't really have a clear understanding of life beyond the grave. Much of that we get from the New Testament. Streets of gold, uh, New Jerusalem, all of that. Where do we get that? From the New Testament. They didn't have any of that. 2 Timothy 1 verse 10 says, But is now made manifest... By the appearing of our Lord and of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Now we know about eternal life and immortality in heaven. Christ has brought light to that. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 8 says, We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. We as New Testament believers know from Scripture, we are confident that the moment we die, we're face to face with our Savior. We have that in the New Testament. We have the gift of knowing the truths of eternity. We have the gift of being able to live our lives in light of that eternity. Philippians chapter 1, verses 19 through 21 says this, For I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and my hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. 
For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. 2 Timothy 4, verses 7 through 8, Paul could look at the end of his life and say, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. We know about heaven. We understand so much about eternity and what heaven will look like. We don't know everything about it, but we know that we'll see our Savior face to face. We know that there's no more night there. There's no more pain. God will take away all sorrow and tears. We know so much about heaven. We have a clear picture of eternity from the New Testament and all that God has promised us there. Do you know for sure that when you die, you'll spend eternity in God's heaven? We from the New Testament know 100% for sure. So many times when we say, well, I hope, I hope, we mean, well, maybe it'll happen. I, I, I'm, there's still some uncertainty there. But the Bible doesn't tell us we hope for heaven, but rather we know we have it. 1 John 5, 13. These things have I written unto you that believe in the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. There's no shadow of a doubt. There's no hope. Well, maybe, maybe not, depending on this and depending on that. No, no, no. These things are written that we might know we have eternal life. We have this beautiful picture of heaven and the opportunity to live in light of eternity. David's argument before the Lord was, Lord, if I die, my ministry is done. And then we see David's despair in verses 6 through 7. Discipline, death, and despair. He says, I am weary with my groaning. All the night make I my bed to swim. I water my couch with my tears. Mine eye is consumed because of grief, it waxeth old because of all mine enemies. A little bit different than what we've seen so far in the Psalms. In the previous evening Psalms, David had peace from the Lord and he slept. I both lay me down in peace and sleep. Here, he is sleepless. He's sleepless because of his fear, because of his pain, because of his sorrow. His sleep was replaced with suffering. And if you know anything about insomnia, insomnia only aggravates your situation. And that's what was happening to David. His lack of sleep was aggravating and exasperating his situation and his depression and his anxiety and his sorrow and his suffering. His eyes were consumed with exhaustion and weeping. Have you ever been there? Some of you have. His eyes were consumed by that. He hadn't been sleeping well. He had been uh, crying constantly. Not quite as peaceful as the previous Psalms. Difficulties and pain will find us. We live in a very troubled world. We can't control those things, but our response is up to us. Will we wallow in despair or will we seek the Lord in prayer? By the way, can I just say, if you read the Psalms, and as we go through this, sorrow is natural. It's normal, right? 
And I love the Psalms because of all of the emotion that's there. It is not uh, weak to be sorrowful and suffering. It's what we do with those things that determines where they'll take us. 2 Corinthians 12, verses 7 through 10. This is Paul, the apostle, writing. He says, Lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. He was tried. He had a physical trial that was not his fault. And he says, For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. There goes faith healing right there. If Paul didn't have enough faith to be healed, I don't know who did. Three times he prays that this thing would be taken from him, this physical ailment, whatever it was, and God says, no. My grace is sufficient for thee. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. So his response then is this, Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. We have the promise from Scripture that our sorrows and our pains are felt by our Savior. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16 says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly under the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He understands what you're going through. He feels and understands your pain. In 1 Peter 5, verses 6 through 7 says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. The God of all the universe cares about what I care about. If it's a burden for me, if it's a trial for me, it's nothing to him. But he cares. And I'm to cast my burdens on the Lord. You know, if you compare what we know of Scripture, we know far more about God's purposes and his plans and how many New Testament passages do we have about the purpose and plans and joys in the midst of trials. David didn't have those things. He, he didn't have the light that we have. We must seek God's face in the dark times and then trust his word at all times. You must remember who your God is and rest and rely on the promise of God's goodness and his faithfulness. John Newton said this, he said, I compare the troubles which, which, which we have to undergo in the course of the year to a great bundle of sticks far too large for us to lift. But God does not require us to carry the whole bundle at once. He merciful, mercifully unties the bundle and gives us first one stick, which we carry today, and then another, which we are to carry tomorrow, and so on. 
This we might easily manage if we would only take the burden appointed for us each day. But we choose to increase our troubles by carrying yesterday's stick over again today and adding tomorrow's burden to our load before we are required to bear it. God gives us grace in the midst of trials, mercy for each day. It's new every morning. I love what one preacher always says, never doubt in the night what God give you, gave you in the light. Faith is trusting God in the hard times. And we have verses in the New Testament like Romans 8, 28, which I'm sure you've claimed thousands of times, that we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to, purpose, to His purpose, that there is a purpose, and that God is able to take any circumstance and work it together for good. James chapter 1. You ever read a Bible passage and just think, that's if I weren't saved, that that's nuts. That doesn't make sense at all. James chapter 1 is crazy. It doesn't make sense. My brethren, he says, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. That makes no sense to someone that doesn't know the Lord. Count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that give it to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. Count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations in trials. First Peter is the same general message. It says in First Peter 1, verses 6 through 9, wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, ye love. In whom, though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. We can have joy in the midst of trials. And we also have to remember that God does not always show us the purpose behind the trial. That most of the time, most of the time, we have to believe in faith that there's a purpose to the trial and take God at his word. For example, Job. God allowed Job to be tested far greater than most humans have ever been tested. And God never did explain what was going on in heaven. The why. God never did explain to Job why he had to face the trials. What did God do instead for Job? He showed him himself. He revealed himself to Job. Soon as Job got a clear picture of God, Job had a lot less to say. God revealed himself to Job, but he never revealed his reasons to Job. We have the benefit of reading the book of Job and seeing the whole heavenly conversation that went on beforehand. But Job didn't get that. We have to remember God doesn't always show us what the reason is, but God always will reveal us, reveal himself to us through our trials. Discipline, death, despair, and then deliverance. Deliverance. 
This psalm ends well. It says uh, in verses 8 through 10, Depart from me, all ye workers of iniquity, for the Lord hath heard the voice of my weeping. The Lord hath heard my supplication. The Lord will receive my prayer. Let all mine enemies be ashamed and sore vexed. Let them return and be ashamed suddenly. You'll find so many psalms like this that start out in sorrow and end in faith, that start out in trouble and end in triumph. Not all of them do. Some of them stay in trouble. But Psalm 6 starts with trouble and ends with triumph. He's confident of the deliverance of the Lord. He's poured out his heart to the Lord. He's come to the end of his self. He's cried out to God for help and mercy. And, and David's faith takes over in the end. Luther didn't have a very good understanding of, of medicine. But he said, prayer is the leech of the soul that sucks out the venom and the swelling thereof. Kind of gross, but it's a good illustration. Prayer is the leech of the soul that sucks out the venom and swelling thereof. How did David get from my soul, my bones are vexed to my enemies are going to be vexed? How did he get from that prayer? Prayer brought him there. He's confident of his deliverance. The Lord has heard his prayer. The Lord has known his sorrows. Isaiah was confident in the Lord and his answer to the prayer that we saw earlier, uh, Hezekiah rather, excuse me, Hezekiah got answered to his prayer in verse 5 of Isaiah 38. Go and say to Hezekiah, thus saith the Lord, the God of David thy father, I have heard thy prayer, I have seen thy tears, behold, I will add unto thy days 15 years. God heard David's prayers. God saw David's tears. He hears and sees yours also. David is confident. God's heard my prayers. God is going to answer my prayers. God is going to deliver me from my troubles. Someone wrote, Many of the mournful psalms end in this manner. To instruct the believer that he is continually to look forward and solace himself with beholding that day when his warfare shall be accomplished. When sin and sorrow shall be no more, when sudden and everlasting confusion shall cover the enemies of righteousness, when the sackcloth of the penitent shall be exchanged for a robe of glory, and every tear become a sparkling gem in his crown, when to sighs and groans shall succeed the songs of heaven set to angelic harps, and faith shall be resolved into the vision of the Almighty. That's what the Bible teaches. In 1 John 3, Behold, it says, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not because it knew Him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And every man that hath this hope in Him purifieth himself even as he is pure. We don't understand it completely right now, but we know that when we see him face to face, we'll be like him. We're not sons of God later. We're sons of God now. We have eternal life now. And heaven is just a culmination of that. 1 John 2.28 says, Now, little children, abide in him, that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. We're looking forward to the day we see Jesus face to face. 
And we're living in light of the fact that that could be any moment now. 2 Peter 1 says, Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, according as His divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of Him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises. This next part just blows my mind. That by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, we shall be like him, for we shall see him. We are partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. We have such a remarkable hope of heaven. Someone wrote this poem. It says, I am home in heaven, dear ones. Oh, so happy and so bright. There is perfect joy and beauty in this everlasting life. All pain and grief is over. Every restless tossing past. I am now at peace forever. Safely home in heaven at last. Did you wonder I so calmly trod the valley of the shade? Oh, but Jesus' love illumined every dark and fearful glade. And he came himself to meet me in that way so hard to tread. And with Jesus' arm to lean on, could I have one doubt, dread? Then you must not grieve so sorely, for I love you dearly still. Try to look beyond earth's shadows, pray to trust our Father's will. There is work still waiting for for you, so you must not idly stand. Do it now, while life remaineth. You shall rest in Jesus' land. When the work is all completed, he will gently call you home. Oh, the rapture of that meeting. Oh, the joy to see you come. Are you having a hard time? You can seek to grow by it. You can allow God to change you. If he's correcting you, allow him to correct you. Allow him to transform you and conform you into the image of Christ. But focus on the hope you have in Christ. In spite of anything we might face, this is not all there is. There is nothing that happens to any single one of us that is permanent. Nothing. Eternity is already reserved for us. Read Ephesians. We're already seated there in Christ. So we should rest and rely on the goodness of God. There are so many wonderful promises. He has promised never to leave us nor forsake us. He has promised that in spite of anything that comes our way, there is always a purpose and a plan, and He never wastes a difficulty. Never. He always uses it to conform us into the image of Christ. So don't focus on the hardship. Focus on Christ. Focus on Christ. Let Him reveal Himself to you like He did to Job. And then focus on your hope in heaven. Everything will be set right one day. God is keeping track. Everything will be set right. He sees, he hears, he feels, and he knows all of your hurts. He hears your prayers, and you can rest in the goodness and faithfulness of God. I can't remember what psalm it is off the top of my head. But it's giving the basically the history of Israel, and it says about God that He led them according to the integrity of His heart. (laughs) If you know your Heavenly Father, based on what the Word says about Him, you can rest in the fact that He is good. 
and He is faithful. And when things don't make sense, you can focus on Him. Father, we do thank You. What a privilege and a joy it is to know You. What an awesome thing that You desire us to know You. Father, I do pray that You'd help each and every one of us to increase in our faith, that we would trust You, Lord, that we would allow You to use our difficulties and trials to conform us, to work in us, and Lord, that we would rest in the hope that You've given us, that we would live in light of that hope, and we would look forward to the day when we see our Savior face to face, and that that hope would carry us through whatever whatever any of us have to face this week, that we would rest in you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for all that you've given to us. And we pray, Father, that you would help us to be pleasing to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.